and we're going to be looking at verses 44 to 52, uh, which is going to be uh, basically three different parables, and we'll talk about each one as we, as we go through. Well, especially because of where we live, I think it's probably true of every one of you in somewhere, maybe not a young child, but uh, have you ever been to a farm sale? Probably most of the guys in here have been to a farm sale. Uh, ladies, you've probably been to a yard sale. You know what, that's a little different. There's no auctioneer there usually. Or some kind of an auction uh, that you went to or an estate sale. And then maybe you were going through that stuff and you realized you found something that was very valuable and no one else has noticed. Now, that's never happened to me. I find something, I think, hey, this is worth something. This is valuable. That's what everybody is, also thinks is valuable, and so the price goes way up, and I usually don't get it. But let's say you found something, and people didn't recognize what this was and just how valuable it actually was, but you noticed, and you just have to buy it because you know its value, and you want that in, in your collection of whatever you have. You win the bid, and inside you're yelling, hot diggity dog, it's mine, I got it, you know, I get to go home with it, it's wonderful, and you're very happy about that. Uh, there's been, and these are, there's numerous stories about stuff like this, this is a true story, but uh, some years ago there was a small bowl bought for $35 at a yard sale in Connecticut, as, and then it turned out to be a rare 15th century Chinese artifact. Uh, the, the white porcelain bowl was spotted by an unidentified antiques enthusiast near New Haven last year, and they quickly sought an expert for evaluation, happy to pay the money that it cost to get it. The experts came back with good news, revealing that this bowl is thought to be worth, at auction, anywhere between three and 500000 300000 I should say, to $500,000 for this bowl that they paid $35 for. In fact, it is believed to be only one of seven of such bowls in existence in the world. Most of the others of them are in museums. A lady by the name of Angela, an expert on Chinese ceramics, said this, and I quote, It was immediately apparent to us that we were looking at something really very, very special. The style of painting, the shape of the bowl, even just the color of the blue is quite characteristic of that early 15th century Ming Dynasty period. How exactly the bowl found its way to be sold in a yard sale in Connecticut in this outdoor sale remains a mystery. Some have suggested maybe it was in somebody's family and passed down from year to year. Somebody didn't realize the value of it, so they said, let's get rid of this old piece of junk and put it out on the yard sale. However it was, uh, that's, how, that's how it got bought. Someone said it is all, Angela actually said it is always quite astounding to think that this still happens today, that these treasures can be discovered, uh, Al, uh, Angela said. Uh, it is always really exciting for us as specialists to see something we didn't even know existed appear seemingly out of absolutely nowhere. Now today we're going to talk about something that appeared on the human scene and people need to recognize its value. And what appeared on the human scene was the God of the world in human flesh. And he had something to offer, which is a membership in the kingdom of heaven through faith in him. The point uh, that we're going to deal with today, the point being that if we find something valuable, we will do whatever we can to obtain it. It is worth something. Today we are going to learn that obtaining a place in the kingdom of heaven is worth whatever it takes to get it. 
And unbelievably, there is no cost for us to get a room in the kingdom of heaven. Amazingly, uh, the worth of that is beyond description, but it's for free. Now, some people just need to recognize the value of being a member of the kingdom of heaven forever, and then they would know just how much it is worth and that it's worth not bypassing this and getting, if you will, your ticket to that place in heaven. Now, I want to read the text, starting with the two other, uh, they're going to be about this, but two other parables. And it starts in verse 44 of Matthew 13. Jesus is teaching, and he says this, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid it again. And from joy over it, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Another one. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had, and he bought that pearl. Again, verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and they gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they threw away, probably carp, right? So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and they will take out the wicked from among the righteous. It doesn't say just some of the wicked, but all of the wicked among the righteous. And will throw them into the furnace of fire, which here is a picture of hell. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood these things? Jesus turns to the disciples because they haven't been understanding everything the way they should, but he turns to them and says, have you guys understood these things? And they said to him, yes. So then he wants to teach them what they are to do. In verse 52, and Jesus said to them, therefore... Every scribe who has become a disciple, which, by the way, the disciples of Jesus Christ are going to write uh, books of the New Testament. They're going to become scribes, and in that, uh, they become leaders of the family of God. So he says, therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things from the new and the old. The new is going to be the New Testament scriptures. The old is the Old Testament scriptures. We'll get to that in just a few minutes. Let's go back to verse 44, not not 34, 44, and look at what is being taught there. Here the uh, treasure is what the man finds in the field, and it relates to the kingdom of heaven. So we would say in verse 44, like a treasure, the kingdom is worth all that it takes to get it. Like a treasure, the kingdom is worth all that it takes to get it. Uh, Noelle likes me to watch, uh, during the wintertime, a show called The Curse of Oak Island. Have you ever heard of The Curse of Oak Island? It's these guys uh, up in Nova Scotia, and they believe that there's this fantastic treasure that's buried on this island. People have died trying to get this treasure. They've been at it for 200 years. And uh, Noelle and I have been faithfully watching it with joy uh, for... <laughs> for the last 10 years, and they still don't have it. Now, I have a sneaking suspicion that we're way behind, like maybe a year on the actual show because they're making good money off the show. Uh, they may have already found it, and they've kept it a secret. I don't know. Uh, there's indications that they did, but not much. But they have put literally millions of dollars, thousands of man hours, into digging up this treasure. 
and uh, they found bits of leather, they found bits, bits of parchment from something, they have also found some old coins not where they're digging but in other places, and they just keep at it year after year after year. Why would you do all that? Well, you would only do it if you believe that there could be a couple billion dollars worth of uh, treasure down at the bottom of this hole that they're digging for, and it's way down deep in the ground. It's made worse because there's water traps that were made to go into that particular tunnel, and so every time they try to pump it out, it just fills back with water, and people have died there. It's a whole thing. The point is they are putting out some tremendous amounts of money and effort because they believe there's something worth it at the bottom of this pit. And so the money pit is what they call it, is what they're really after. Well, uh, they have found something that is earthly. I've also noticed with them and me, as the days go on and the years go on, uh, Marty and his brother are getting a little older and the gray hair is starting to pop out. And I thought, what happens if they don't find this before they die? All this work. And they're putting all this time and money and effort into it. What if you didn't even live long enough to get that earthly treasure? How much is an earthly treasure worth? Maybe not that much. For them it is, but maybe not that wouldn't be in my mind, but maybe not that much. But there is something that is worth everything you have to make sure that you get it. Will this be worth it uh, with the Oak Island people? I don't know, uh, but it certainly isn't eternal. I know that. There are numerous meanings that have been postulated for the meaning of this short parable. Actually, you know, one verse, right? Uh, for example, the guy that was the president of uh, Dallas Theological Seminary when I did my four-year stint in seminary there was Dr. John F. Walvoord. And if you have the Bible Knowledge Commentary, he was one of the editors of that commentary. And Walvoord says this about uh, God giving, uh, well, what he's doing, he's saying, here's what I think the parable means. Uh, he says it is about God giving all to find treasure, which is the Jewish people. So he said this is about God treasuring the Jewish people, and he's going to give everything that he has, which he gave his son on the cross, that's for sure. And the next parable is about all that God did, giving up the glories of heaven to redeem a pearl of great price, which is the church. Now that's John Walvoord's take on it, probably one of the greatest scholars of his day about things that happened in the last times in eschatology. All right, the point then would be that during the king's absence in the world until the second coming, Israel would continue to exist while the church would be growing. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read that first parable, none of that pops into my head. I don't, I'm not even sure that's what we're talking about. Jesus has been talking about the difference between heaven and hell. He said in verse 41, the angels of God were going to gather people out of the kingdom and they're going to end up in hell and the righteous people are going to go to heaven. I think he's talking about people for sure, but I think it's just as easy to look at this and take it for what it says. It's about a man. He finds something that's valuable and he does whatever he has to to hang on to it. All right, now you say that about God and Israel, but it doesn't quite fit all of the history of Israel. So I'm saying it's probably a lot less complicated than that. And uh, that seems very complicated than what John came up with. And it would appear to have just a plain meaning in this parable. And uh, I'm not the only one that thinks that. Others do too. But a man somehow finds a treasure that seemed to have been well hidden in a certain field. Now the issue is it's not his field. But he's in a field and he finds a treasure. You know, if we go out and find somebody digging in our field, we're probably going to get upset about that. What are you doing out here digging in my field, you know? Well, anyway, he goes and because he finds a treasure 
that was hidden there. He buries it again, and he goes and he finds the owner of the ground, and he purchases that field, and he rejoices over the fact that he's got this treasure that nobody knew about. It is such a valuable treasure, he sells everything that he has so that he can purchase the field and the treasure in it. Now, I want you to understand this parable. Jesus is not teaching about ethics here. That's not the point. Uh, you would think, well, shouldn't that guy just tell the landowner, hey, you don't know this, but I found this fantastic treasure on your ground. I buried it for safekeeping. I'll show you where it is. You own the land. It's probably yours. Uh, Jesus isn't talking about that. The fact that the guy should maybe have said, hey, you're sitting on a gold mine. Uh, we don't know how much it was actually worth, but it was worth a lot. And that's not Jesus' point. Jesus' point is if somebody finds something valuable, they will do what it takes. And not, not anything wrong, but they will do what it takes to get it. How valuable was the treasure that the man found? Well, it was valuable enough that he sold everything that he had so he could get that treasure. Obviously, he thinks that what he has to pay for it is not going to be the price of what he's going to actually get. It is better to take the treasure as the kingdom of heaven and the man as somebody who finds the kingdom of heaven. Recognizes its value. Recognizes that it's out in the field where anybody could get to it, but he, he said, I found its value, and I'm willing to pay any price to obtain it. And I want you to remember that salvation is free. It's at no cost. But there's a lot of things that people must give up and people must pay if they're going to get into the kingdom. We'll have an example of that uh, in just a little bit. The point that this makes is this, and I think this is what Jesus is teaching the people. Don't let any material thing stand in your way of entering the kingdom of heaven. Now, there's lots of other things that can stand in people's way and keep them out of the kingdom of heaven, but don't let material things, at least things of this world, keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. I want you to turn over to Matthew 19 for a minute, and we'll look at verse uh, 21 through 24, Matthew 19. There's a young man that wants to be a disciple of Jesus. Jesus knows his heart. So he says to him in verse 21, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, he went, out, uh, went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. He's a very wealthy young man. And then Jesus said to his disciples after he left, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a sewing needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And the disciples said, well, that's impossible. And then Jesus said, well, nothing's impossible with God. Here's a rich man, and Jesus said, you want to be complete? You want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? Get rid of everything that you have. Get rid of all the encumbrances to you serving me and come and follow me. And he was grieved. He did not recognize that the wealth that Jesus was offering him in the kingdom was greater than all the sum total of the wealth of all that he owned. Jesus wasn't asking him to give up less to get, or more to get less. He was asking give up the less to get more. And he didn't want to pay that price. Let's move on to the second parable. Again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. So he's apparently in the market for pearls. And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went out and sold all that he had 
and he bought that pearl. He must be thinking the pearl is a greater value than what he has in his personal portfolio. Finding the kingdom is worth any price to acquire it. So the again clues us into the fact that Jesus is dealing with the same subject here, uh, obtaining a place in the kingdom of heaven, coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The phrase the kingdom of heaven occurs 32 times in the gospel of Matthew, eight times in this chapter, 13 elsewhere. Uh, the phrase is not used in any other gospel, so it's unique uh, to what Matthew wants us to know. Here we run into a merchant who is actively seeking to purchase pearls. Uh, this would be a, like a diamond uh, merchant today out, out there trying to find different mines and stuff where they're pulling out diamonds, and he wants those diamonds. Well, pearls were very valuable in that day, like diamonds are today. He found one pearl, and it was of a great value. Dr. Keener tells us that ancient reports tell of pearls worth tens of millions of dollars in modern currency. This merchant, uniquely sensitive to the value of the pearl, wisely invests all that he has to purchase it. And see, that was the problem with the rich young ruler. He was not willing to give up all to gain Jesus. Uh, the things of the world held him too tight. The things of the world were more valuable to him than the things of God. And uh, he couldn't see what he really needed. So valuable was the pearl that he went and sold, so, so, <laughs> sold I'm sorry, all that he owned, and he bought the pearl. The kingdom should be our most sought-after treasure in all of the world, above everything else. Another example, uh, if we go to Hebrews chapter 11, verses 35 to 38. This is about people that recognize the value of the kingdom of God, even above the own security and safety of their own life. He starts out with uh, a good thing. Women, in verse 35, receive back their dead by resurrection. Then, then some of the bad stuff that comes with following Christ. Others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute and afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world is not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith with God, did not receive what was promised, because God had, prov God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they would not be made perfect. These people were willing to put up with torture to follow Jesus Christ and to follow God because of what was waiting for them, and they could see with spiritual eyes that value over above anything this world has to offer us. Well, in verses 47 to 50, we learn that God's angels will one day gather the wicked from amidst the righteous and cast them into eternal fires. We're talking about the fires of hell. In verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is now compared to the work of a dragnet when fishing. A dragnet was a net that was uh, a large net that was weighted on the exterior edges and it was thrown into the water and it traps everything that swims uh, under it at that point or over it if they let it sink to the bottom. And then it's all pulled together and tied up and hauled up in, onto the shore or into the boat. The dragnet itself was not discriminate. 
The drag didn't, net didn't go through the water and say, oh, we don't want that fish, let him go. We want this fish, keep him. It took everything that there was. At the end, at the second coming, everything will be gathered. All right, nothing will be left. But it's not the drag net that is discriminated. It catches whatever is there. The determination of what the fisherman is going to keep is made after the net is dragged from the water, so after the gathering. In verse 48, when the net was filled, then they pulled it up onto the beach and they went to work on selecting the fish that they wanted. The good fish they gathered up and they were placed in baskets, but the undesirable fish, the ones they discriminated against, those fish were thrown away. Someone estimates in Jesus' day that there were somewhere between 18 and 27 different species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. The dragnet represents the gospel that is given to all people. The sorting uh, represents the fact that not all that are caught in the net are part of the righteous. There's going to be people that are caught when the angels gather them all up that don't belong with the righteous. So there's going to be a separation. In verse 49, then, this is an illustration of what literally is going to happen at the end of the age when Jesus comes back to set up his kingdom. So now we're talking about the second coming of Christ. It is a comment about the fact that no unbelievers will enter the kingdom when the kingdom starts because they've all been thrown into the lake of fire. They were all gathered up. The righteous are left, but they're thrown into the fire. The angels of God have gathered them on that day. Angels have no problem knowing who really belongs to Jesus Christ and who's just faking it and doesn't belong to Jesus Christ. And they're going to gather the unbelievers from among the believers and they will be taken away into judgment. Where do the believers get to go? They get to go into the kingdom of God, the millennial rest for his people. And uh, we will be there too. Uh, we're not going to go the way they did, but we'll get to be there with Jesus as well. Something to look forward to. In verse 50, thus... The beast and the false prophet, which are taken at that time and thrown into hell as Jesus descended, will very quickly be joined in the lake of fire by multitudes of those who hated Jesus. The furnace of fire, the Bible says, is forever. What is it worth to give up Jesus? Apparently, it's just eternal fires of torment forever and ever. What a horrible thing. What a horrible thing. And if we believe it's horrible, then we ought to be above anybody else reaching people for Jesus Christ. Reaching people no matter what it takes because the kingdom is so valuable. The furnace of fire is forever. It is a place of torment for people who give up on Jesus. And there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there because of the pain. And uh, as I was researching this, I didn't realize this, but there are people that believe the entrance to hell is in Stull, Kansas, S-T-U-L-L. -L. And they celebrate that, and they have signs up and stuff about that. That's not the entrance to hell, okay? Uh, but people at least believe there is a hell, and there is an entrance, and the angels know where it's at, and they will cast these people into hell. The phrase literally means here, when it talks about what's going to happen, weeping and gnashing of teeth, it means grinding one's teeth together, and it comes about because of pain. And I'm going to look at that in the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 9, uh, verses 48 and 49. It says about hell, where the worm does not die, so there's worms there that eat flesh. 
and the fire is not quenched. It's also outer darkness. For everyone will be salted with fire, that is, those in hell. Salt is good, but if it has become unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. In other words, don't be a person that doesn't have Jesus Christ and don't end up in the fires of hell. Bad place to be. Well, as we move on here, Jesus just made the same statement that this is making in verse 42. The lake of fire is a very real place. I'm reminded of Auguste Rodin and his rendition of Dante's Inferno in a sculpture called uh, The Gates of Hell. It's a sculpture that he never finished before he died, and it goes along with his companion sculpture, the, uh, the Thinker, if you've ever seen a sculpture of that. The Thinker was supposed to be, when it was done, sitting on top of the Gates of Hell, and there's three uh, models of the Gates of Hell across our country and one overseas, but it wasn't finished. And the thinker is supposed to be thinking about what he's sitting on top of, and that is hell. And do I really want to go there, or do I want to make a difference by trusting Christ and not go there? And as we contemplate eternity, we need to be those who recognize the great value of the kingdom of God and that it's worth everything that it takes to get there. Don't let things like material values and material possessions get in the way of pursuing the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 16:18 says something about this, this topic where it says, I also say to you, Peter, that upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The gates of hell will not overpower what Jesus is planning to do. So that would make me think it's worth everything it takes to get on Jesus' side, and we get on that side by faith. Then finally, it seems a little bit out of place here, but it's not. Jesus asks in verse 51, after he tells these parables, Have you understood these things? And the answer they give is yes, because they're growing spiritually. They're starting to understand what eternity is like and what heaven is hell is like and why Jesus Christ is actually here. Uh, Peter is later on going to say, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he's going to say, blessed are you, Simon, because flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but my Father in heaven revealed it to you. He goes on to say, and Jesus said to them, and I believe he's talking to the disciples here at this point. Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe, a scribe is somebody who works in the text of Scripture. A scribe is somebody that is a teacher, a learner, somebody that's working with the text. Therefore, every scribe, and that's going to be the apostles, they're going to write scripture later on, who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household. So they're going to be like heads of a household of the church who brings out of its treasure things new and things old. What treasure do the disciples have? A lot of them have given up pretty much everything to follow Jesus. And what the treasure is that they have is the word of God. And there is a new part of it called the New Testament, the New Covenant. And there's an old part called the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. So the disciples understand the spiritual truths that Jesus is teaching. That's good. They're going to be writing about these truths later on. They are progressing in their understanding of the truth, which is that's the journey every one of us should be on, progressing in our understanding of the Bible. As teachers of righteousness, which is what the disciples will be, the disciples will draw out truth from the Old Covenant and truth from the New Covenant that Jesus is teaching, and they will write it down for us. 
And that's important. We have churches today that will not teach out of the Old Testament, won't preach out of the Old Testament. I just want to pull what little hair I have left out because that's the Old Covenant. We're a New Covenant church. We're a New Testament church. We just stick with the New Testament. No, you don't. Even your New Testament doesn't stick with just the New Testament. Over and over and over again, even Jesus quoted the Old Testament scripture to talk about things that are true today. And that's what Paul is going to do. That's what uh, you know, other writers, Luke, is going to do, and, and Matthew, and Mark, and Peter, and, and John. They pull out of the Old Testament and say, this is, this is what the Lord wants us to know. If you had to stay out of the Old Testament, why are you dragging it into the New Testament to teach? The Bible says in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired and profitable for teaching and training in righteousness, all scripture. The Old Testament is called scripture by the New Testament and the Old Testament. The New Testament is called scripture. Paul is said by Peter to have written scripture. It's all scripture, so it's all valuable. You can't pick and choose what you want out of each one. They go together. The church must never make the mistake of teaching from the New Testament alone. That is not the whole counsel of God. So they will teach the household of God as scribes, as scholars, as fathers of the church. The church will be taught truths of the kingdom of heaven accurately from both testaments. That's why he says from the new and from the old. So the old and the new testaments. Both old and new are treasures of God. And those treasures lead people to the kingdom of heaven. Both must be diligently studied. Now, what we've learned today is this, among other things, I hope. Number one in your applications, the glory of the kingdom is worth any sacrifice serving Jesus may call us to make. There's nothing more valuable or more costly than the kingdom of heaven. So that's what we work for. Secondly, the good news about Jesus should be preached to every person. We want them to know you can get into the kingdom. Their hearts may be hardened. Their hearts may be open. We don't know. We still need to preach to them the good news of Jesus Christ. Thirdly, if the kingdom is this valuable, and it is, then it is our highest priority to tell people what it is and how they can be a part of it. It's also our highest priority to live it. Are we kingdom members? Are we living like we're kingdom members? Are we talking about the kingdom and our king? And then fourthly, there's a time when the wicked will be taken and the righteous will be left. And that's at the second coming of Jesus Christ. One more place that uh, talks about that would be in Matthew 24, verses 40 to 42. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Who's taken? The one that's on his way to judgment. That's who's taken. Who's left? The one that is righteous. There will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other will be left. Therefore, be on the alert. You do not know which day your Lord is coming. But, if, but be, sure that, be sure of this, that if the head of the household had known what time the night thief, of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. The whole point is that there is a day coming when there will be a separation. Make sure you're separated on the right side of things. Finally, number five, the church must hear 
from the Old and New Testaments. The church must hear from the Old and New Testaments. Um, I, because of the New Testament, got a degree in the Old Testament Semitics because I don't think you can understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. It's very valuable, and we must teach both. Uh, Dr. Keener says this, and with this we'll close. Jesus expects his disciples to build both on the biblical teachings that had come before him and his gospel of the kingdom. The heavy New Testament dependence on both shows that they did just that. They taught out of both. Well, it is our privilege today to uh, enjoy 